one of the big isometric exercises, the, the whatever you want to term the single leg Roman chair hold or the single leg isometric hip extension that you see commonly prescribed now, uh, which obviously I've used quite a lot in some of my um, in my in my case reports. And I think it's like perception. I see it now, like people use it, and then but you see people program it with the legs completely straight, when clearly that's not the aim because you're trying to mimic that late phase of swing before you've got you're resisting the extension in in eyesight. So it's, and your your force is going through mid foot as well, and how you so it's the, it's not just seeing an exercise and saying I'm I'm doing the single leg Roman chair. It's, it's how you coach that exercise, and then it comes down to the loading parameters that are in that. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. On this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast, we have an absolute star-studded trio when it comes to isometric strength training and testing. So we've got Matt Tabner, who is now at Manchester City. We've got Alex Natera who is at the New South Wales Institute of Sport. And then we've got Danny Lum, who is at the Singapore Institute of Sport. So it's an absolute star-studded lineup. Not only have these guys got incredible experience in the applied setting using isometrics, but they've also got the experience from a research perspective as well. So a pretty unique episode in all senses is this one, um, which I'm sure you'll love. We'll dive into testing, training, creating your own isometric exercises based off specific positions in your sport, quasi-isometrics, um, dive into the research, using isometrics with rehab, using isometrics with female athletes, like so much stuff going on there. If you are interested in isometric strength training, please check out the isometric, isometric strength training course with Alex Natera that is live on Sportsmith now. So if you go on sportsmith.co forward slash courses, you'll find more information. There is unbelievable amounts of experience. Both these guys, um, Danny and Matt, all both contribute, as well as obviously Alex, who contributes some incredible information through, in our opinion, a really well-produced course. So check it out. But without further ado, over to the episode with Danny, Alex and Matt. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And also sponsoring this episode is Hytro. Have you ever tried blood flow restriction training? So for pro sport teams and athletes, Hytro is the only performance BFR brand to create pressure validated BFR wearables that are practical, safe and scalable, allowing you to enhance recovery and maximize athletic potential like never before. Widely used by top flight rugby, football, cricket and motorsports teams already in post game changing rooms, away game travel, hotels or at home. Hytro has proven that creating their simple and effective wearables allows BFR to be delivered to athletes and squads simultaneously and safely. To find out how Hytro BFR can give your athletes a competitive edge, visit hytro.com or email the team at teamsales at hytro.com. So without further ado, over to the episode with Danny, Matt and Alex. So one of the questions that, that came in that was framed in various different ways, but I hopefully I've amalgamated it, amalgamated it together into one relatively simple, um, simple way, is the process of creating isometric exercises to focus on specific positions crucial to particular sports. And it's something that I spoke to, to Danny about in the podcast and I've spoke to you, Alex, as well. So I'm going to come to you, Alex, first. What is the process that you go through 
when designing an exercise to fit a specific position that's relative to a specific sport or to a specific action? What do you go through? What's the, what's the process? I think historically, if I talk about um, my isometric process, initially it was very much similar to probably what, what Danny's going to talk about in terms of a general thought process around why you implement isometric training. So it was very much around getting an exercise that can produce a really high neuromuscular output and high mechanical tension. And that being a general stimulus, which then can drive adaptations that hopefully transfer to the sporting arena or sporting movements. So that was process thought process one. And, um, and I think with Danny's work, you can see quite a lot of that happening quite naturally in some of the sporting movements. But really the way I went around it was a little bit more specific. So I was very much considering, right, there's this general stimulus that will occur. That's fantastic. And that will transfer. But if I can also look at a sporting movement and A, find out what sort of muscle action is involved in that sporting movement, then I have a box, if you like, that I can tick. And then once I've assumed, so for example, running was one of those boxes. And that's why I've gone heavily down the, the run specific isometrics. So we know, hopefully from listening to previous podcasts and, and the information that's out there currently, that there's some potentially quasi-isometric muscle action in the running postures and the running gates around mid-stance. Um, uh, and, and with that in mind, that, that's one process box ticked from a specific implementation of isometrics. And then very much around, well, my thought process goes around what sort of muscle length is there and related obviously to the angle of different joints and then trying to match them or become very similar to those sort of joints in the sporting movement, the, the joint um, angles in the sporting movement. And then really going down to think about what sort of forces are either needing to be tolerated or uh, resisted in the sporting movement. And then if we can also apply that in an isometric movement, then looking further into it, uh, what time frame do we have to produce force or resist force, if you like? And then looking further into it again, and you can see the process going through run-specific isometrics, what happens prior to producing force? So all of those processes lead me down the line of then designing exercises specific to the, the sporting action. In my case, going right down to the specifics of running. Uh, and really with that, I guess if you then think about change of direction, for example, or you think about acceleration, again, my very first box to tick is the muscle action. So then does that, if I'm going down the specific route, does that take me away from acceleration and change of direction? If change of direction involves a very um, pronounced eccentric motion before you produce concentric forces, um, likewise is acceleration, certainly at the knee and the hip, more concentric focused. So then it tells me, am I doing this from a muscle action specific reason, reasoning, or is it more of a general reasoning? And so in that case, absolutely, when you, when you do, and I have done um, plenty of work with isometrics for vertical jumping, where maybe there's not as much as an isometric muscle action in the actual movement, but the general transfer has had, um, has had an effect. So a number of different ways to look at it, really, whether you look at it from a general or a specific context. I'll, I'll ask Danny to come in there and add, add a little bit of um, information from his work. But Alex, when you look at them, number of things that you're going through, that the process that you're going through, are you trying to elicit the information yourself in your own environment or you are looking to the research or a little bit of both? Oh, it's certainly, uh, certainly both. Uh, very much research. So, um, you know what, it's when you, when, when you, when you get pushed down this uh, corner and then you forget the author's name. So I won't, I won't even try and pretend. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Looking at contact times, force, um, magnitude of force, angles, all of these sort of things. A really, really good PhD uh, paper um, that I've really sourced out to, to have a look at this. And um, again, the name, name escapes me, but I know Phil Graham Smith was her superv supervisor. I just can't recall her name right now on the top of my head but absolutely yep so there's a, a process a coaching process what do you see what do you think what's your gut feel and that's originally how it started with me with one specific isometrics 
Um, and then it's research to back the progressions and where you're going to go from here or what might be more important or can I get better transfer? Absolutely, the research underpins that. And again, that's not research based on isometric training and its effect on running as such. Um, it's more what, is, what are the biomechanics to the movement, what sort of kinetics and kinematics, and then going from there. And that's, that last point is really important as well um, for people just to, to frame that. So, Danny, coming over to you, You've shared a couple of exercises. I mean, we, we spoke about in for, for your cyclists, but would you mind reiterating what you you mentioned the the podcast and how you go, how you go about it specifically for that population? Okay, um, most in most cases, what I would do is um, I either um, work on the 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 uh, joint position whereby the uh, concentric force is initiated, or um, the biomechanically most disadvantaged position of that particular action. So for example, if I, we're looking at the squat, um, if we, we go by the um, a parallel squat, for example, I, I can either get the uh, person to get the athletes to, to do the isometric squat at the parallel position, or we do it at a sticking point, which is about 90 to 100 degree knee angle. Yeah. So that's some of the uh, consideration that um, uh, I, I have when I prescribe the um, position for the, the uh, isometric training. And okay. yeah, and sometimes um, I do what um, Alex does as well, um, getting the uh, isometric at a very specific angle. Um, so, for example, um, my running, my study on um, isometric training for runners, which is not published yet. Um, what I did was, I got the runners to perform the isometric mid thigh pull um, at the 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 joint angle where uh, the foot during the foot contact. So, uh, sorry. Yeah, during the strike, when where the foot is flat on the ground, and uh, that particular uh, joint position is where the uh, isometric mid thigh pull was uh, performed for the runners. Yeah, mm -hmm. cool. Thanks, mate. Just coming, just coming to you, Matt. I'll come back to you, Alex, in a, in a second to add to that. Just wanted to get that from a, a, a rehab perspective, Matt. Again, similar to Danny, you've shared some, well, lots of lots of stuff around your protocols and things, but how do you go about fitting that and making them specific to the, the things that the guys have mentioned? I think all things, all what Danny and Alex said were like really important. And you're almost in a rehab situation, reverse engineering some of that to think about then, okay, this player's injured. What are the demands of the sport we're getting the player back for? So typically in the sport that I've worked in for numerous years, football, like running and locomotion is a key part of that. So return to running is obviously that first entity of when they return to the grass. So you have to prepare them to return to run. And then obviously all those other factors that Danny, uh, Alex talked about in terms of acceleration, et cetera. And then like you talked about change of direction, deceleration, and then football, this clearly a high amount of quasi-isometric actions take place in potentially in deceleration motions. So it's thinking about the demands of the sport and then thinking about potentially what the injury is. So obviously football, hamstring injury is the most prevalent and common injury that people are always talking about. And then obviously we have this massive debate between eccentric and isometric, and that's still probably forever going to go on for a lot longer. But obviously when someone's first injured, it doesn't make sense to actually, well, both from a healing perspective and the perspective that the player's not ready to take them through any form of eccentric contraction. So the isometric form, obviously there's no length, it's, there's a constant tension, there's no lengthening, and it's relatively safe. And Danny emphasized this on his podcast. It's a perfect way of sort of testing where a player might may where be at, particularly if obviously isometric posterior chain that we've looked at quite a bit, whether that be a monitoring tool for the, the healthy players, how they're responding to load. And secondly, for a returning player, Importantly, if, if you have their pre-injury benchmark information of where they're at, that serves a vital cog in the wheel because you're trying to get them back to that level of function, potentially or within that level of function before they return to on-pitch running. So the isometric, because obviously it's safe, it tells you where they were prior to being injured, it is a vital cog in that wheel. But it also 
comes down to the demands of the sport and then reverse engineered back from what the injuries that you're looking at, whether that be a shoulder injury, for example, if someone falls on football, you might look at Ben Ashworth's Astesh, for example, to see where they are from on. So it all depends. It, it, like, it's a complex process, but it's reverse engineered what the injury is, the demands of the sport and the demands that's going to be placed on that structure within competition. You both, Alex and, and Matt, have both mentioned quasi-isometrics. I think Danny mentioned it as well. Can you give a bit of a definition of what that is, Matt, just to give people a bit of an idea if, if they don't know? Oh, Quasi-pseudo-isometric, false-isometric. It's almost like I saw, I think it was someone doing rapid eccentrics or reflective eccentrics, which really is just a rapid eccentric movement followed by a, a pseudo-isometric, so a braking action that we don't know, but potentially is an isometric contraction when you see someone stop from a, a large movement in sport, is there an isometric contraction there that's going on? Possibly, like Alex has mentioned in some of the, in some of the, the locomotion. So it's that element of it. It's a, potentially a, a false isometric contraction, but there's not enough, enough evidence or research on this yet, which hopefully people will go down in, in the coming years. Cool. You've got something to add, Alex? Yeah, I was just going to say... Uh... In terms of the transfer as well, it's probably another important element of, that I that I probably I missed out, and it's the type of isometric action you 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 do you you, you implement. So whether it's a, a push or a hold, for example. Um, so a, uh, I always keep getting mixed up yielding and and uh, overcoming, but I, I, like the literature says, is a push and a hold. So I'll stick with that for now. Um, okay. Danny, don't worry, Alex. don't worry, Alex. We all get mixed up with that. We get confused and we think we've got it wrong, but we, we know what we're on about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> about that. yeah. No, great. No, great. Overcoming is a push, I'm sure. But anyway, we'll, 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 we'll check later. Um, so Danny um, does a lot of push work, right? And I thought it was really interesting in his podcast with you, Dan, um, Rob, where he mentioned that you know quite a lot of the some of his studies, like the course the powerlifting study but the kayak study and the cycling one as well or the in-house work he's done on that is this pushing isometrics is again trying to be concentric but unable to be concentric and that's why Danny was mentioned correct me if I'm wrong Danny that that was probably a better transfer crossover over to those sort of concentric muscular actions if you like in the sporting domain yet with running flip that back and think holds now so what you're trying to do when you run you're, you're trying to stop yourself from compressing, driving down to the ground. So what you're doing is you're doing a very different isometric action rather than a pushing one. So you're doing a, a holding isometric action. So the gravity force is coming down on you and you're resisting that force coming down on you. Um, so there are those crossovers. And that's not to say that, you know, when we're going down the isometric route for sporting performance, we're already becoming very, very specific with if we're thinking muscle action specificity anyway. So it doesn't mean that everyone shouldn't do push work for run-specific isometrics. They should do because there's big high neuromuscular outputs in that push work. But also to understand that some of the best transfers that I'm starting to see is from when you move to doing your holds and then through the quasis moving forward. And another point on those quasis too, Danny made me, made me sound far too clever talking about quasis there with a different isometric action at the hip and knee and the hip eye. So as I was like, I'll take it though. No, I'll take that. But uh, yeah, it's not what I, not what I meant. <laughs> I know we haven't got the, the benefit of video and uh, and the ability to, to share different exercises, Alex, but with them, with them examples that you're given, could you paint a picture of what an exercise may look like to fit into them boxes that you, that you've, uh, that you mentioned? Unmute, unmute. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so if we if we go for the knee um, to keep it nice and simple, sort of a mini squat position in mid stance sort of position, and if you're pushing into an immovable bar, a bar that's far too heavy or a racking system, that is a push, um, aka overcoming. I hope. Uh, and yet, if you're now having a load that can move and push you downwards, you're again staying in that single leg squat position, ideally in a Smith machine, so you have some level of stability. And again, now that weight can push you down. And if it gets too heavy, it will start pushing you down. So you're counteracting it with an opposing force just to keep the bar level. Nice, easy way to sort of frame that. Cool. Thanks, mate. Matt, anything to add? I'm just going to emphasize this in terms of when we're going back to the hamstring training. I suppose the, one of the big isometric exercises is the the, whatever you want to turn the single leg Roman chair hold or the single leg isometric hip extension that you see commonly prescribed now, uh, which obviously I've used quite a lot in some of my, um, in my, in my case reports. 
And I think it's like perception. I see it now, like people use it. And then, but you see people program it with the legs completely straight when clearly that's not the aim because you're trying to mimic that late phase of swing before you've got, you're resisting the extension in, in eyesight. So, it's, and your, your force is going through mid foot as well. And how you, so it's, the, it's not just seeing an exercise and saying, I'm, I'm doing the single leg Roman chair. It's, it's how you coach that exercise. And then it comes down to the loading parameters that are in that. So what, what are you trying to achieve? Is it like isometrics? Is it pain analgesia? Where it's going to be different to where it's obviously increasing stiffness, which is obviously one of the main adaptations of isometric training. But that's that's a good example of it using a yielding isometric hold uh, in a player coming back from a hamstring strain injury. And obviously you get, you're overloading that involved limb, which obviously it makes sense to do if that's the injured limb. Uh, and secondly, you put intention through that, which obviously then you consider that if you do cyclic high strain magnitudes and repeat that in a cluster form, you actually get time detention and you, you challenge that strength endurance component that you might be important to return a player after hamstring strain injury as well. Love it, mate. Anything to add, Danny? Oh, yeah. Um, just, just to uh, give my opinion on um, when I personally use um, the pushing and the holding method of isometric. So if my objective is actually to in increase the rate of force development and the concentric, uh, the ability to, to, to perform the concentric action, then I'll, I'll implement the, um, the pushing action, get the athlete to exert maximally and um, explosively. If my um, objective is actually to probably to work on the eccentric, eccentric strength or um, with the ob objective of um, injury prevention, then my option would be using the yielding or the holding isometric method. Because um, if, if you look at some of the, uh, the, recently there's actually one study that actually shows um, that the pushing method um, is kind of mimicking the concentric contraction while the holding method uh, seems to be more similar to eccentric contraction. Cool. We're gonna, I'm going to stick with you, Danny, if you don't mind. Just taking us on to our next point. Just want to move things along to make sure we get as much in as, as possible in the next uh, 40 minutes-ish. So testing and monitoring isometrics without a force plate, that was a one question that came up a couple of times in those that registered. So how would people go about that if they don't have the, the luxury of a force plate? Okay. Um, before I answer the question, I don't get any funding and I don't get any sponsorship. <laughs> All right. Um, the, <laughs> a cheaper method a cheaper method is actually uh, a string gauge. So uh, if you look at it, if you just just look at Alex, um, Alex uh, Instagram, he actually um, introduced a, a, a string gauge. Um, yeah, so um, that that is a cheaper method. Um, what it does, it, it, it can allow you to get the peak force. Um, I don't think it allows you to get the um, the force epoch, does it, Alex? No, right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah you can get rate of force development from it and uh, um, and force at certain time points as well. So, okay. yeah. Yeah. Yep. oh, it depends. Yep. That's the that's the uh, that's the I guess the the strain gauges on steroids, which which uh, which <laughs> is the one I think you're referring to on my Insta page. Yeah. Yeah. So so um, yeah, a string that that string gauge would cost a lot less than um, the force plate. Um, another device that's, um, I think it's still under development um, by Force Hook. Um, yeah, it's a pretty cool device, um, but with that, you actually need a suitable squat rack. Um, yeah, so this these are some of the options for people to go about um, use, uh, purchase, uh, uh, sorry. The, the, these are some of the equipment that people can use to replace a, uh, a force plate. Yeah. Come to you, Alex. Oh, go on, mate. Go on. Yeah, sorry. Over to you, Alex. Sorry, I oh, was going to hand it over to you, and then I saw you unmute, and I thought, yeah, we'll get you in anyway. Over to you, yeah, mate. Uh, and I, so in, in terms of my isometric journey and trying to quantify and give information to people, I was very much very fortunate to always be around force plates and being able to quantify everything. And it's important to quantify everything so you know how, how hard you're working. 
because particularly with isometric strength and some of these movements, you can be very, very strong, yet the weight you might hold if you don't know how strong you are, you might think you're near max and, and that might be enough for you, but you're probably at 60 or 70%. So actually getting the real data to know where you're at gives you a much better prescription off the back of it. But I, I remember, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, probably because of you, Rob, uh, and your podcast, uh, highlighting um, my, my fixation with isometrics. Uh, I would have a lot of questions about that. And, and, and the question was always, but what if you don't have a force plate? So that was a problem. It was a massive problem. And there's only so much information I could tell people to you know, push up against something that's immovable. If you move it, brilliant, put another two and a half kilos on. If you move it again, put another two and a half until you don't move it. And then that's your max value. Brilliant. And then you could work off the back of it. But that's so painstaking. So actually, funny enough, I started going down the route. And thanks to Chris Gavilio, uh, Gavilio a guest of your recent, recently on the podcast, he actually suggested to me, get, why don't you get one of these crane scales and, and get it made? So I went right down the rabbit holes. I was in China trying to find it. I wasn't in China. I was ringing China trying to find a, you know, a, a crane scale that would work, that would do RFD, that would give us feedback quickly, Bluetooth, all that sort of stuff. And um, I couldn't get it produced for a reasonable cost. So I just let it go. And then this company, Exergio, got in contact with me and said, hey, have you seen this stuff? And it was their crane scales. And I was like, that's exactly what I was trying to do for people and get out in the market. So so full disclosure, I'm teamed up with them because they're, they're a great product as well that can offer a, a, a nice, reasonably cheap solution there for everyone. Just, just coming to you, Matt, I know when you're in previous positions, you probably have access to force plates. Mm -hmm. But if there's, if there's other people out there that don't in terms of a, a rehab setting, is there any recommendations that you would have? I think like... Probably people don't think like a handheld dyno. But if you're looking at a specific joint and you want to do it early on to see where someone's at and you, you haven't got access to a force platform, where it be a permanently installed one in the, is embedded in the floor or a portable platform, then a handheld dyno. Obviously, the problem you get with that is the issue between if it's the same person testing or another person testing, the, the reliability is pretty questionable. And then obviously, depending on what cohort you're working with, if you're dealing with, say, a younger person, the relative amount of force they're going to be produced and what you have to withstand is not much. But then if you get a, a weightlifter or a professional footballer, these guys can produce a significant amount of force. So obviously making sure that is actually a true isometric contraction without any sort of form of sort of quite eccentric contraction as well. So there is some issues with that, which is why we switch to the portable force platform testing. And secondly, obviously we get the quality of data, not just the peak force, which is pretty reliable um obviously familiarization with any tests but then obviously the the well forces at or rate of force development however you want to term that which obviously with sprinting ground contact times give you a bit more valuable information but then what we found is with that it's it becomes down the familiar familiarity of the athlete to do the tests obviously in a rehab setting the athlete is doing the testing more on a more frequent basis so that quality of that data becomes a lot gives you a lot more quality of information rather than being noisy in a person who hasn't done it before so it's also thinking about that also when it, whenever you put a test in think about those pillars that obviously robin thorpe speaks about quite consistently is go through that process with any test to ensure that the data you collect is to inform your practice is good quality data so we're just going to get a very quick break in the chat with Matt, Alex, and Danny. So over in part two, we have a little chat around some of Danny's research and the take-home messages from that when it comes to isometrics, but also isometrics paired with plyometrics and other types of strength and power training. We also dive into using isometrics with youth athletes and tap into Alex's experience there and then continue the theme of using isometrics in rehab and with female athletes with Matt. So a really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientist to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com 
and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. And this episode is also sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. And now back to the episode with Matt, Danny, and Alex. Just sticking with you, Matt, and just taking it again to keeping it in the in the rehab setting. Yeah. How would you think about it when you're looking at progressions? Maybe someone that hasn't done isometrics before early on in a rehab process, and then planning that throughout the allotted period of time that you think that person is going to take to to get back to to playing. Yeah, I think it comes down to like with the injury, what will happen to the plan, and then like what what's your, I mean. What are your conceptual goals of your rehab? Like, why are you going to include isometrics? What is your, what is your, because obviously we look at, I feel Glasgow's works really, like, really, like, really good for me. Like, this optimal loading concept or conceptual loading, maybe that it should be called, is that what do we think theoretically is going to happen if, if we want to apply certain load and to maximize physiological adaptation of those injured structures and tissues? That's really what we're thinking about. Once we're looking at the, the actual infrastructure tissues and returning function, then we come more towards that transfer training specifically to improving performance. So return to performance side, which is obviously when the fit and healthy players back and that process continuing that may take up to, I don't know, it's an ACL two years after they return. So it's all those things to think about. So where does the isometrics programming fit within that conceptual loading approach that you have around the type of injury? So if, if we say an ACL, for example, before they even go up to op- for surgery, you've got this preoperative phase where can we use certain isometrics to maintain muscle cross-sectional area, but do it safely? Because if we put them into surgery in a better position, when they come out, we're going to be in a better position. We can crack on earlier and, and be more progressive. Because obviously in elite sport, you're under pressure to get a player back as quick as you can and as safely as you can. So if we can be proactive and think about strategies that we can implement with our athletes earlier, that's really important. And then when you're coming out of that, you've got obviously like years ago, rice was the typical principle. Rice, uh, rest, ice, compression, elevation. And now we've moved on to this. Yeah, that's maybe a little bit too conservative. Obviously in the early stages where you've got that bleeding and edema and et cetera, it's not going to be like you're going to be managing injury. Uh, but then when you come out of that, when you're going sort of through that proliferation phase, then can we apply certain types of isometric contraction. Also knowing that the athlete can self-selectively apply as much force as they want to based on their injury. And then that's guiding us to how they're returning to pre-injury function based upon the data we're collecting. So it all comes down to that. So it might be with programming, for example, an ACL injury, we know this residual strength deficits. And we know some of them precursor, we know cross-sectional area is important for force production. So we may want to put some muscle mass on a limb set of the involved limb. So can we use certain elements of yielding isometric derivatives to, obviously it's a form of blood flow restriction, which blood flow restriction, muscle, the blood pooling, that cellular swelling is a stimulus for hypertrophy, but without the load going through the joint, because the joint's obviously gone through surgery, effusion, et cetera. So it's all, the, all these things, like it's really complex, but all these things to think about. But the main thing is think about what are your conceptual goals you rehab? What is the injured structure? And then what are you trying to, and where does that fit in with like the long-term process? Well, where it's early rehab before they go to that return to participation phase when they're going on the pitch. So it's, where does it fit? And how does then that complement your other forms of uh, muscle action in the process? Thanks, mate. There, there was plenty of questions that came in on the rehab stuff. So that's that's framed it really nicely. Um, Alex, anything to add there? Yeah, I was just going to say, just writing some notes down there too. Uh, you know, it, it's funny, I, only only a couple of uh, weeks ago, I mentioned potentially an intervention for a particular athlete to, the, to a, 
uh, one of the medical staff. And immediately the thought process was, no, 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 no ISOs. It's time to progress. And I was like, ah, there's a, there's a disconnect here. The understanding that ISOs <laughs> are actually really, really high force, massive neuromuscular outputs, um, huge mechanical strain and tension, but without all the adverse negative effects of that type of training we would get from a traditional standpoint. And so I was just, I was just, it just r- reminded me that very much the, the people in charge of early stage rehabilitation are very much focused around the tick box. This is isometric work now because that's what we can do, but we need to move on to isotonic work quickly when we can. And, and actually my process probably around a lot, number of years back now was actually to go, you've done all this isometric work up to this point now, I've got them quite strong and provided a good stimulus. And now you want me to start from scratch isotonically as you hand them over. And I'm like, well, no, I'm just going to keep on going with isometrics because you've done so well to get them to this stage. I'll bubble along with the isotonics bit by bit. Yeah, they'll start squatting with a 40 kilo bar, slowly get up, but their isometrics are already at a certain level. So I'm just going to go. I'm just going to keep pushing it and pushing it because you've already done the, done the great base work for me. Thank you. And then the other thing to think about, mate, is you know, if, if you believe Adrian Lai's work and, and, and what I'm trying to say is running is isometric, in, in nature, um, a large portion of it, then ultimately, if your athletes are off of running for substantial periods of time, then you should be doing isometric works to prepare them for the specificity of the muscle actions in running. And I can give you an example of how this was done to, uh, not me, our team, done it to perfection with this Achilles rupture. We had superstar player, Achilles rupture. He was out for six months. We got him back real quick. And the idea was, can we make him play the finals? Because we were going to make the finals but there wouldn't have been enough time to reload him safely. But we just did so much isometric work all the way through his prep, not just focused on the Achilles, but all the way up the chain, that when he came back to run, we could ramp up his running so quickly. He was able to star in the finals, be best on ground and, and, um, and take us as far as we could that year. And no reoccurrence, everything, because he, he was tolerated. He had done the running without doing the running, if you know what I mean. Okay. Thanks, mate. Involved. Thanks, mate. Um, Danny, we'll come to you for, for a final point in a second. But Matt, anything to add there? Yeah, I'd just emphasise what Alex said about the isometric, the use of it in the early stages of the rehab. I think that's the, what commonly people think. That's the perception, right? But it's, it, it, it doesn't stop there. It, like, it continues through the process. Like, the main adaptation that you're possibly looking to get is tendon stiffness, right? That ain't going to happen in two weeks. That's a long-term adaptation of this structure. It's going to take maybe 12 weeks plus to, get, to increase tendon stiffness. So if we take, don't get me wrong, high-intensity eccentrics will also improve stiffness to a certain degree. So they're additive to one you combine them. But like we had to think like, okay, our goals, and then how does that fit with, how are we going to get there? How, do, how long does that phase in? So then it comes down to, okay, how do we periodize, periodize our isometric loading in with our other type of loading? And, and I suppose that's, yeah, because we got this thing about tendon stiffness, probably pretty important for jump landing activities, right? So why don't we fit them too before, obviously, and maybe first day on the pitch, our afternoon session is linking our isometric loading together with our jump land, landing preparation. And then our second day activity, we might do work on the pitch for second day and our afternoon might be our tissue damaging stuff before they've got that third day, which is restoration. So it's where does then that fit in our programming? But continuing, knowing that some of the adaptations are going to be like a long-term uh, process rather than okay we do it just to i'll get them out of pain etc no it's like a tendon like you talked about tendinopathy like what do we use it okay ebony rio stuff around five five times 45 second holds at 70 percent mbc great it gets it but it's to get you to the dynamic part as well it's not just to get you out of pain it's to enable you to progress outside of that so it's again what is the structure what is your goal and how does that all link together in the process Cool. Thanks, mate. Just come over to Danny. Did you have something to add there a minute ago, Danny? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that um, we, we, we want to look at is when um, the, the training phase of um, the athlete. So, for example, we know that isometric poses low risk of injury and um, you can pretty much increase your strength or, or even use it as a form of strength maintenance. So, Towards the, the um, competition phase, you want the athletes to maintain the strength um, and you want to reduce the, the risk of injury. That's when you, you can actually um, implement isometric training in. That, that works well for um, 
that, that would work well for the athletes. And um, recently I was reading a paper by, uh, I can't remember the professor's name, pretty long. Um, he was looking at um, um, European jumpers and um, tracking the Europeans jumpers um, uh, ratio of the muscle and tendon function, athlete's tendon function. And uh, what they found was that um, the ratio changes throughout the training phase and the ratio increased during phases where resistance training was reduced. So um, the athletes were performing a lot of ballistic training, jumping, plyometrics, but there was um, a lack of um, resistance training. And so the muscle function a lot better than the tendon. So I think at, at, in, in, in these cases, um, where athletes are trying to reduce um, heavy, heavy lifting, that's when they can um, implement some isometric training as well, because um, it's not as fatiguing, it's less time consuming, contract 30 seconds, that's it, go back to your isometric, uh, sorry, go back to your plyometric training. That will help with the um, uh, improving, improving the function of the tendon, like what Matt said. Oh, thanks, mate. Did, um, Alex, did you have anything to add there, or has Danny covered that? Uh, I think Danny, to some fascinating this um, morphological change in the tendon, just like Matt said, takes takes forever, um, but it, it does get there. It does change. But um, I, I just can't help, and I can't back this up by any, by any science. So I was going to try and hijack you and ask a question to Danny. But we, we see some, we often see some changes, maybe maybe not all the way through to the muscle tendon level but we certainly see that there are stiffness changes in some of the jump characteristics that, we, so an output measure of stiffness, if you like, quite quickly in the process. So it's not necessarily change morphologically at the tendon level, but I just wonder what Danny might have to say on that because uh, with his runners, for example, um, his recent running study, it was only a six week, Danny just does six week studies, you see, because he's that good with isometrics, whereas we have to do years and years of stuff to make a change. But anyway, that, I wonder if Danny has something to add on that point. Uh, well, unfortunately, I did not do any uh, measurement for um, the morphological changes like ultrasound scan and stuff like that. First, I don't have the equipment um, and I don't really have the expertise to accurately diagnose the changes. But what I, um, I'll refer to um, a, a few studies by Kubo. Um, Japanese um, scientist. He, he actually did a lot of um, isometric um, studies and he actually looked into the morpholog morphological changes. Um, in, in one study, he actually compared the uh, uh, plyometric and isometric training. And what, what he found was that uh, the tendon stiffness was changed in um, isometric training but not with um, plyometric. But plyometric actually changed the active stiffness of the whole muscular tendon uh, system um, during, during activity. But that did not really change much in uh, uh, isometric. So um, what from based on my study, um, I, what, what I found was, what I thought, Actually, what I thought was that we know um, if we want to increase the, the utilization of the uh, elastic energy from tendon, we want the tendon to be stiff. So when you stretch the tendon, the recoil will be greater, right? So with plyometric, um, they increase the stiffness of the muscle, but not the tendon. So what happened was the tendon was able to be stretched while the muscle is able to be stiff. So um, maintaining the stiffness of the muscle allows the tendon to be stretched further and that allows for greater recoil. While for isometric, they increase the tendon stiffness, but the ratio to the increase in tendon stiffness and increase in muscle stiffness was um, not proportionate, maybe in a way I, to say that. So 
tendon stiffness was great. Uh, sorry, tendon stiffness increment was great, and muscle stiffness increment, active stiffness increment wasn't as great to allow the muscle to maintain that stiffness for the stiff tendon to stretch to a greater length. You get what I mean? Yeah. So, and that was why um, in that study, they, they did not see an increment in um, uh, the uh, stretch shortening cycle, sorry, the improvement in the stretch shortening cycle function for the isometric training. So, um, theoretically speaking, if plyometric training is good at improving the active stiffness of the muscle and Isometric training is good with um, increasing the stiffness of the tendon. So if you combine them together, you pretty much have a perfect training. Well, that's theoretically speaking. But um, again, we need more experimental studies on that. Cool. Thanks, Danny. Appreciate that. Matt, anything to add? Well, just to how we talked about the complementary use of obviously um, biometrics and isometric like focus training. In, one, in the semi-membranosis uh, reconstruction paper that we published, obviously we measured counter movement jump uh, data with that player. And obviously the, the, those two components were a big part of his like periodized plan. And like not directly measuring those, but when you looked at his changes like circa, the, the CM depth, the counter movement depth got shorter and his eccentric rate of force development like in, was enhanced, giving that indication of and obviously a reduction in flight time contraction time because of that reduced counter movement depth and concentric eccentric duration, which would give you the notion of an improved like stretch shortening cycle capability based upon that training effect, although it wasn't actively measured, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Well, I'm just going to um, remind people to pop your questions if you've got any in the chat box and we'll, we'll come to those in five or 10 minutes. But one thing, uh, one question that came up a couple of times again in those that registered Alex was isometrics in younger populations. And I'd spoke to Luke Jenkinson at, at Derby about this. I know you'd, um, you spoke to him at, at certain points over the last couple of years about this, but why would somebody use isometrics in a younger population? Uh, and what are your thoughts on it? Unmute, yes. <laughs> so with youth or adolescents or academy aged, um, Look, again, nutritional training, I think, is completely, you know, the, the number one. Get, get, get them doing their traditional training and almost earning the right for more of this type of work. But if we are implementing uh, isometrics, again, if you're looking at it from a specific running side of, side of things, then starting with longer time under tension. So it's, it's where I break my rules. So I, don't, I tend not to do anything longer than 10 seconds. Uh, I just go... I add weight and get higher intensity and shorten the durations and, and then work on you know, rate of force development and other things like this and some more quasi-isometrics and so on. However, with the younger athletes, um, I break the rule there completely and give them longer time under tension uh, with less load and just take my time with holds, um, start measuring something with the pushes to see where they're at to then give them some level of quantification of loads. Uh, I still dependent, does, that, whether the pushes tell me that they're, they're really strong isometrically, I still probably don't necessarily go down the route of loading them up heavy. I still am working with the, the traditional training as a, as a general philosophy. And we're working from 30 seconds kind of thing down to 25, 20, 15, 10, until we get into the zones. And that might take years rather than, rather than months as such. However, caveat. So, with your athletes, some, some athletes, I worked in an academy that we have to push athletes and get them ready, right? So now either we were going to try and get them to squat double time, two times body weight and push them into that as hard as we could and as fast as we could by the time they're 15, and, and we did successfully at some stages. But other times that just comes at far too much of a risk. But they're a higher performing athlete. They're not elite yet, they're not senior, but they're on a pathway and sometimes they need to achieve certain things as they go through. So actually isometrics becomes a very safe way of getting maximal neural, neuromuscular outputs with them. So then you can shift that mindset as well in that case. It is a high-performing junior athlete that's on a pathway. Well, then let's get load out of them this way rather than trying to double bilateral squat. And we'll, we'll keep on that journey with a bilateral squat or a deadlift or whatever. But this is one that we can go, boom, jump up here straight away and start putting massive uh, stress through the musculature and the nervous system. Um, but again, this in this case, rather than holding heavy weights, let's push. So then you're always in charge of your output, if you like. 
so then we can get them to push into to objects rather than um, hold heavy weights as such. Um, so that's another thing to consider. I guess another another one is say for instance an academy aged athlete now in a pro academy they're still you know they've they've survived on talent a lot of them rather than necessarily being physical weapons. So with this in mind, we can also consider look loads are going to go through the roof now. They're going to be playing you know pro level games uh, whether that's second division or under twenty ones or, or whatever sport you're working with. Everything's going to ramp up massive. There's the demands of them going to ramp up. The stress is going to ramp up. The physical stress is going to ramp up. The loading on the field and so on is going to ramp up. So actually, do you want to then go and do more and more plyometrics? And do you want to go and do more and more heavy lifting? And do you want to put them at a bigger risk? Or do you want to go switch your mindset over to isometrics a bit more? And that can be your key focus, your key driver, as you tick along the process of development over the years with this academy age player. So multiple ways of looking at it there so what i'm essentially saying is exercise care and caution with my progressions if you look at them or you see my progressions there's no need to go to the full length of them you're already being specific in terms of running by doing my isometric training so you can just play the long game and having and again the the, the flip is if you need to get that stimulus for a performance reason there's a safe and effective way to do that as well Thanks, mate. Like I said, there was quite a few questions that came in. So I think that'll uh, that'll tick a lot of boxes for for people on this call. Matt, with your experience of working with with female athletes, does this does it make any difference? Are we are we taking other things into consideration when it comes to isometrics or not? Uh, not really. I think the big one, like if you're going to use some of the yielding variations, you're going to use them away from like the concentric side and developing rate of force <clears> and come further down the process, say with an ACL. If, you, if you're going to look at, say, cross-sectional error and those things, like holding yielding isometrics when it becomes, say, loaded yielding versions is quite, is quite mentally challenging. Like, to, 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 do they have the concentration, the focus to actually do that? That's one big thing that I would say around that. And that probably transfers to a younger athlete as well. Do they have the level of emotional maturity to do these types of contractions? Do, because when we think about the adaptations we're trying to get, Apart from obviously those cross areas where lower ones driving that blood flow restriction response, these are obviously the ones that are concentrically focused are above probably 70% of maximal effort where you're going to get the adaptations. So it's making sure the athlete can buy, buys into that approach and gives you like full intent. That, that would be one of the big things to say. And then obviously with any type of training, it's that diminishing returns as well. Like you only get so much until you progress. So it's important, like know where you're at, progress that. Is the, and it will be the same. Mm-hmm. Cool. Just, <clears throat> excuse me, sticking with you, Matt. Last point before we dive into a couple of questions that have, that have popped up in the chat. Again, stick them in now. We can we can get to them, but make sure you direct them at someone so I know who you, uh, who you want to answer that. And we've mentioned this a couple of times, Matt, fitting isometrics in a wider program. And we've, we've, we've got the, the title as science application of isometric training, but it's important to know that this fits into a wider program. So I just want to kind of put that back to you, as you've mentioned it a couple of times, just to probably reiterate that. Yeah, of course. Like, say if you're looking at it from a, a fit and healthy player, like a professional footballer, how does that fit? Are they doing some form of, obviously we know about um, overcoming ISOs. They're quite, they're, they're central nervous system like challenging. So that's really a form of potentiation in effect. So can they use like a, a small amount of these elements in their pre-training preparation before they're going out? Because they're priming the nervous system without the energetic cost that would be of maybe heavy, heavy, slow resistance training. So where does that fit into like your pre-training prep? Then obviously when they're doing their strength programming, where does that fit in with their, I'd say high speed running exposure in the week and the, the game model of the coach? So it's planning around like, Again, communication with what's the bigger global program because obviously Alex made this like they, the, the amount of training stress that these players go through on an elite level is, is huge. So where does this fit into the programming? And when they're going through, say, two games a week or whatever, can you use these tools because we know they're less energetic, we don't have to program mass volumes potentially to tap into the nervous system. So it's, it's fitting that in and around the program. And then obviously the injured athlete, it's obviously what, what is the conceptual goal? As I mentioned, say the structure, say it's a bone injury, then we know for the, the, the literature around bone injury, we know that bones respond best to dynamic loading and jump loading rather than isometric contractions. But the isometric contraction for, serves the muscle function side to get them into good positions where it may be a return to running. So it's, 
they complement each other. That's the big thing to think about. It's not one in isolation. It's how they fit together in this jigsaw to get the player back to sport, back to team training from a rehab perspective. Cool. Thanks, mate. Nice way to uh, nice way to finish off before we dive into <clears throat> before we dive into questions. So again, if anyone's got any uh, pop them in the chat. So next eight or nine minutes on on some questions before I let these guys go and crack on with with what's left of their Sunday. So question for Alex: How do you implement isometric isometric testing? into a profiling hierarchy. Are you all right taking that? Yeah, I'll just try and be quick knowing that you've yeah. got, uh, we've only got nine minutes and it looks like there's 12 or so questions. So just really quickly without, um, so I do ankle, hip and knee. Um, if they're big squads, it's problematic, it's difficult, but we do them as a priority because they're really important from a return to play side of things and also for being able to quantify loads. With force plates, it becomes difficult and arduous. With gadgets like the one mentioned uh, before from Exergio and the like, then that becomes a really simple process because I can get three or four of them out and and, and measure people as we go. Um, so I, I guess, and, and the main thing, because peak force is the most reliable, that's the main thing we look at. But when we're training, certainly we look at rate of force development and, and force at different time points. And we use the outputs to be able to you know give people that sort of, I guess that um, that direct, I guess quantification of what they're doing as such. Um, I, I think I, I hope that answers your question. But yeah, uh, you know we've got our stretch shortening cycle assessments. You've got your concentric only type assessments. You've got your max force assessments at different joints. We still do well. Actually, no. Depending on where I'm at, we do some isometric hip up pulling still, just because those numbers are so readily available to the community. We know what good is and what bad is. Whereas my data, or my data, the data on run-specific isometrics is growing more and more as we, um, as, as more and more people adopt it. Hope that answers the question. Yeah, Sorry. cool. We're, yeah, I've just seen uh, the amount of questions I didn't actually look at up at the top, but um, we probably won't be able to get through all questions. But there's one for for Danny, and feel free to jump in, uh, Alex and Matt as well. Um, are you combining exercises of isometrics with plyos in a complex method? That's Vangelos. Yep. Um, okay. It, it, it really depends on which training phase I'm in. Um, if, say, my focus at that point of time is just maximum strength, what I would usually do is uh, I'll half the volume of... Um, uh, dy dynamic version of that exercise and then I'll replace it with uh, uh, the isometric version of it and usually it will, it will be it will either be at the um, the joint position where the um, concentric phase is initiated or the sticking point of that um, of that particular exercise um, I do the uh, con con contrast training as well. So what I did uh, usually do is three three repetition of the uh, maximal isometric contraction followed by um, a set of five jumps, for example. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that's that's usually um, closer to competition. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, mate. Just one for for, for Alex, and I'll get Matt's um, uh, opinion on this as well. <clears throat> And again, this may be covered, so please, please bear with me. Um, what stages would you implement more or less isometric training um, based on based on competition? I'll come to you, Alex, first. Is there any stages of the annual plan that you would implement ISOs more than others based on your competition season? No. Yeah, definitely. Quite in competition, there's a there's a lot more isometric work. It depends again what we're what sport we're talking about. Cost. In track and field, the sprinters absolutely like. Uh, there's been sprinters where that's their, that's been their work, plyos and isos, and that's it. No traditional lifting as such, but that was very unique circumstances and very unique athletes, though, too. So rather than blanket rule it, I would just say um, it, it, it depends. It depends on the situation and the athlete. But, um, yeah, certainly towards competition phases, isometric work is um, a fantastic way to be able to get a really high stimulus and not have the undue fatigue. Having said that, I have for really high neural output guys, fast twitch fiber guys that can really put out high. So some sort of some sprinters, Bob Skeleton athletes, those sort of things, they can absolutely ruin themselves off of one or two really high intensity reps, maximal all out reps of isometric pushing. So you have to be careful of the athlete. And so what I do with those guys is instead of going for a two or three second 
maximal output, I go for half second, right? You're going to get tension out of whatever, say whatever position it's in, get a bit of tension in into the bar. So all the slacks out of the system and then you're going to go hard and then back off completely. And then that keeps them fresh. That, that has them fired and they don't fatigue so much. Most average Joe blogs and team sports are absolutely fine to do maximal, maximal um, uh, isometric contractions and be, be fine and recover quickly off the back of it. Matt, coming to you and just one of these questions, um, and we're getting into the weeds here, we're getting into the super, super specific details, but would these kind of exercises come right at the start of a session or would they be somewhere in the middle? Uh, it, it will depend entirely on like what type of isometric derivative you're using. So potentially if it was obviously the, the, the overcoming, which are more central nervous system focused and concentric focused, they'd probably come more at the start of the session because the, the generally in a fresher state at the, the, the start of the session. And then I suppose the ones that are more the, the, to get that, like that stimulus of like, uh, like submaximal holes, longer duration, you're trying to drive uh, restriction and that side of it in terms of a, a volume response. Then I guess they're going to go towards the end of the session, like you would program blood flow restriction training, because you, you're going because they, they're quite fatiguing, they're quite draining neuromuscularly and anyway because you're holding something for a long time, so the time of the tension is long, so they're going to become at the end of the session. So it, it comes down to where what what's the type of exercise you're going to use, why you're going to use it, and then the, where does that fit in with your within session programming? And then obviously the rest periods in between are obviously going to influence that. So if it's something that's highly central nervous system draining then you're going to have longer rest periods in between because you want them to repeat those intensities when they do it again, rather than, okay, or if they're working on the repeatability under fatigue, they might, it all, it's that depends, 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 which is probably not the perfect answer that no one wants to hear, but that, that's what you're dealing with when you're working with athletes uh, and you're trying to individualize a program. Alex, anything to add there? Yeah, I thought I just I just know that this is a question that comes all all the time. You're like, how do I do it? Yeah, great, thanks for all that information. But how do I do it? So <laughs> I just wanted to hijack it again and just to just to try and help and shed more light as well on it. So look, there's <clears throat> I, I, I often find myself using it in team sport environments as microdosing quite a lot. So I know Matt mentioned earlier on, you know, some analgesic effect or or some sort of therapeutic response early after games. So games played two days later, we're getting some loading in, but it's therapeutic loading, holding isometrics or pushing pushing isometrics, so less eccentric type work, pushing and it's really, really, really contained intensities. You get a great feeling off the back of it. Boys aren't as sore anymore. Um, we've got a load in too. And then you've got your pre-training analgesic effect for normally the tendon boys, but we just get everyone, we can easily get everyone doing it to get another dose. And then you've got your main effect on the main training day, the main gym session. And no one has to go crazy and think, oh, no, I can't squat and I can't clean anymore because I've got to do isometrics first. Actually, a really good way to warm up for your isometrics is to go do a blooming heavy squat, you know, a double or a triple, warm up to it, get a good one on your back because you're going to be putting five to six times body weight loads if you're doing a one-leg isometric squat position through your back anyway. So that squat doesn't even compare. It's actually a good warm-up. So you don't actually have to let these things go. You can do power exercise, do jump squats, warms you up for your isos, then they're the big neuromuscular driver, hit them really, really hard. And just like Matt said too, you've got your supportive ISOs at the back end of it where you might go for longer duration stuff, a bit more of a tissue type focus where you might do holding work as such. And then later in the week, captain's run, for example, um, game minus one, 24 hours before a game, you might have a priming session there where you might have rate of force development isometric focuses in that because you've got nothing in terms of neuromuscular fatigue, but a nice heightened neuromuscular uh, sense off the back of it. And then even game day warm up in the sheds doing stuff. You can do isometric stuff there and then go out and play. You microdosed it four or five times in the week. So depending on who, who the athlete is, you don't really have to do much more. Do your key hammy eccentric work and all that, of course, but it's actually a good way to get it all in. Um, so you can look, look through all of that and find out ways you can implement it if you like. Love that. Thanks, mate. Danny, were you going to add anything there or was that covered? Um, no, yeah, covered. Um, Alex said it. Okay, okay. <laughs> no worries, mate. One last one. It might be it might be a quick one. Um, just to just to see us out uh, on the hour. How would you prescribe load for a yielding isometrics? Would it be percentage of body weight or rep max? Alex, that came to you, but yeah, I'll go real quickly on that. Again, yep. if you can get an output, if you can get an output and measure it, which again, it's available to you now. Everyone can get it. So get that output, measure it, find out what you are. So there's uh, if you're putting out uh, one thousand newtons. And then my, my heaviest yielding work 
will start touching 75 to 80% of that output, okay? Factor in body weight and stuff too, depending on how you're measuring it. If you're on a force plate, you've got to minus your body weight, okay? Otherwise, you'll, you'll be lifting weight too heavy. But the yielding, I generally put yielding, if it's not therapeutic doses or you know longer duration holds, if it's, again, like my system sort of dictates, 10 second as maximum holding, well, then we're working from sort of 60%, maybe as low as 50 to 80% when we're just holding it for a really short duration, really high intensity work. Some people can't get to 80%, I must say, and it's around 70, 75 for them. But there's the range. I hope that answers the question quickly. Absolutely. No, thanks, mate. I hope people understand that um, we're at the hour, so I want to let you guys go and get on with what's left of your Sunday. So I'll make a note of all these questions that have come in because there's quite a few we haven't, there's probably 10 that we haven't quite got to. Um, hopefully there's something uh, in the future that we can we can answer them along the way. But I really appreciate people, people tuned in. It was 100 at its peak, which is great. Um, and thank you for everyone for sticking around. But biggest thanks to Matt, Danny and Alex for giving up some of their Sunday to uh, to have a chat. It's been fascinating. I think there'll be the rehab guys, the youth guys, the team sport guys all got uh, all got plenty of uh, plenty of info there. So really appreciate your time. And uh, well, yeah, we'll all catch up soon. Thanks for tuning in to episode 454 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the Isometric Strength Training course with Alex Natera. We've partnered with him to create the best resource when it comes to isometric strength training. And both Danny and Matt, as well as probably 22, 25 other experts in this area, all contribute. So you can find more information at sportsmith.co forward slash courses. Trust me, you will not be disappointed. Over a thousand coaches worldwide have gone through this course in the last 12 to 18 months, and we've had some amazing feedback. So please check that out. Big thanks to our sponsors today Hawking Dynamics, Kitman Labs, Team Builder, and Hytro. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so we really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in, and I look forward to chatting to you next time.